Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, with a message titled, The Greatest Commandment. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We live in a day when the word commandment is really not a popular word. It sounds like, well, you know, a list of do's and don'ts. So why is it that the phrase list of do's and don'ts strikes us as negative? Well, in some ways it's not. You know, I saw a website like, you know, 10 do's and don'ts in a job interview, things like that. It's overwhelmingly popular, helps us succeed. But do's and don'ts in religion. I found one website that said, do this, don't do this. Unfortunately, there are many people even in Christianity who tell us we must do and don't do this in order to be a Christian, end quote. The site went on to say that because of this, it's turned a great many people away from the gospel. And then it went on to say, Christianity is not based on doing or not doing. Well, I've been thinking about that simply because this is not the only voice in Christianity that has said things like that. If the point being made is that we can't earn our way into heaven, well, true enough. But let's also be clear, shall we? The reason many people are turned away from the gospel is hypocrisy. The Bible says don't commit adultery. That's a clear don't. And because so many public Christian leaders didn't live by that don't, many people are turned from the gospel. Another don't is related to greed. And when some Christian leaders have used the gospel to line their pockets and become extremely wealthy, flying in personal private jets paid for by donors, a don't has been violated. That turns people from the gospel. See, I just don't agree that do's and don'ts turn people away from anything. You know, whether I'm servicing my motorcycle, cooking a meal for my friends, studying an important test, applying for a job, carrying on an effective relationship with my spouse or children or family. See, the world is filled with do's and don'ts. And we've been studying Matthew's chapter 21 to 25. Those are five chapters which center on Jesus during Passion Week and his disputes with the religious teachers and the authorities who gave leadership in the temple in Jerusalem. And so today I want to spend some time with a key dispute, one that involved the commands of God. Let's read the text, Matthew 22, 34 to 40. And when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, our passage begins by saying that the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. You know, in the last encounter, the one about the resurrection of the dead, we see that he not only silenced them, but he so thoroughly mastered the debate with them and did so in the plain watching of the crowds. And since the matter was on the resurrection of the dead, Jesus clearly showed on that matter, well, he was in complete agreement with what the Pharisees taught on that matter. And so we'd have to believe that the Pharisees would have been delighted by the outcome of that debate, or were they? The other issue they had to deal with is that Jesus bested the Sadducees in a way that they never could. See, in spite of the fact that they should have rejoiced that the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead had been so ably defended, They also had to deal with the fact that it was not they that had done it. 
They were jealous. And furthermore, when their badly planned attack on him, sending their disciples to him, pretending to be on his side, when that plan went so badly sideways, they were made to look like deceitful men. Matthew says that the Pharisees gathered, and given the context, it's not that they huddled among themselves. Rather, they gathered around Jesus. And one of their number, a man whom Matthew identifies as a lawyer. A lawyer was an expert in interpreting religious law, the law of God, and how it should be interpreted and applied to the contemporary situation. And before we go on, let's talk about this man. Matthew in his gospel only mentions the bare details, but Mark and Luke also relate this very same incident. Mark calls this man a scribe, so what accounts for that difference? Well, scribes were copyists. Before Gutenberg invented the printing press, the only way to make copies of anything is the painstaking and very careful work of copying by hand. Each word had to be accounted for. No mistakes were allowed. Letter by letter, word for word, same amount of words on each page. Letters had to be copied with clarity. Handwriting was an art. That's a scribe. But scribes were not just technicians locked into a room somewhere. They were also experts in what they copied. I mean, after all, they spent most of their time with the sacred text. And so it wasn't uncommon for a scribe to be a law expert. That man had mastered two fields of study and, by all indication, well-respected because of it. See, there's another thing that we learn from Mark's description of this event. Mark's description is much longer than Matthew's. In Mark's description, found in Mark 12, 28 to 34, we see that after Jesus answered the question, this lawyer or law expert tells Jesus, you're right, teacher, and then goes on to explain why it is that he completely agrees with what Jesus has said. And furthermore, after his response to Jesus, Mark tells us that Jesus saw this man had answered wisely. And then amazingly, he tells this scribe slash lawyer slash Pharisee, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. See, Matthew, for his own purposes, has chosen not to reveal that wider context. Matthew simply wants to focus on the greatest commandment. And that's, of course, perfectly legitimate. I mean, after all, as I've said already many times, each of the four gospel writers tells the story from his unique perspective. And that doesn't mean that all four aren't absolutely true. It does mean that each gospel writer wants us to view what truly happened from various vantage points. Only that will give us a full understanding of the life of Jesus. But I mentioned Mark's telling of this account right here because Mark tells us that this Pharisee is in fact an honorable man. So let's remember that some of the Pharisees were. John tells us of a Pharisee named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. See, our problem today when we read the Gospels is that we think that all of the Pharisees were hypocrites. And furthermore, we tend to think of them in the same breath as the Sadducees. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, same bunch, just a different name. But that was not so. You know, in the last study, I gave a bit of a history and a description of the Sadducees. Let me do the same with the Pharisees. After Israel returned from exile to the Promised Land, beginning in 537 BC, Ezra the priest had taught them that the reason that they had gone into exile in the first place, the reason they had suffered so terribly as a nation, is because they had forgotten the law of God. And so Ezra leads a revival. It leads Israel to return to the law. Never again would they turn to idols. Never again would they overtly rebel against God's commands. 
and then the hundreds of years following Ezra in order to ensure Israel's faithfulness to the law, a group of Bible teachers following in the tradition of Ezra took it upon themselves to be teachers in Israel. By the second century BC, we find these Bible teachers called the Hasidim, or God's loyal ones. Out of that group came the Pharisees, also known as the separated ones. They were men who separated themselves from the world in order to study the law of God and interpret it. In time, these men became the most respected Bible teachers of their day. And by the time of Jesus, they were known to have been stressing four things. One, the holiness of God. Two, that Israel were God's chosen people. Three, the absolute authority of Scripture. And four, the ethical demands to be faithful to the Torah or the law of God. Now, when the Pharisees studied the law, the law of Moses, they wrote down every single command that Moses had given, and they numbered each one. And they came up with a full numbering of 613 commands, 613 do's and don'ts, 248 were do's, 365 were don'ts. And then in order to apply those commands, they often went too far. We all know about the ridiculous nature of additional laws around Sabbath keeping. You know, Sabbath keeping went from a freeing command to an oppressive one. And furthermore, in stressing the law, they surely left the impression that one could gain righteousness by law keeping rather than a righteousness by faith. You know, in this, they were leading people astray as well as leaving no room for compassion for sinners and mercy for those who were lost. And they became arrogant in their righteousness. And that's why Jesus had to tell Nicodemus that he needed to be born again to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And as for this lawyer, this expert of the law of Moses, well, he's not far from the kingdom. See, the crazy thing about the Pharisees is that in some ways, their theology was not that far from the teachings of Jesus. On so many things, they actually agreed. It's just that they missed the main things, faith, humility, compassion, mercy. Oh my, so near yet so far. And I say all of that so that we won't dismiss everything the Pharisees say out of hand. And indeed, on the question of those 613 laws, well, they were right in assuming that not all the laws, they said, had equal weight. Do you have young adults in your life? Or perhaps you are a young adult and have questions on challenging topics about life and faith? Then be sure to check out In Doubt the Young Adult Ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Each week, Endowed engages in an interview with a guest who is well-equipped to speak on a given topic faced by many young adults today. Topics such as medical assistance and dying, purity, social media, and parenting for young moms and dads, relevant subjects that provide biblical insight. Guests like Andy Steiger, Kyle Eidelman, Sarah Zilstra, and Matt Smethurst have all appeared on the podcast to share their expert advice with the young adult audience. So be sure to check it out or pass along the information to the young adults in your life. Just visit indoubt.ca, download the Indoubt podcast wherever you typically listen, or call 1-800-663-2425 for more information. The Pharisees said that not all the laws have equal weight. See, there are a number of evangelicals who simply actually don't understand that. I hear some people say, you know, all sin is just sin. The way they say that, they must mean that all sins are of equal weight. 
So let me ask a question. Imagine you as a male are secretly lusting after a woman in your heart. Is that a sin? Yeah, it is. It's a don't. But now imagine another man who doesn't just lust after the woman, he rapes her. Are we to actually be so foolish to say it's just all sin, one is the same as the other? Of course not. And here the Pharisees were way ahead of a number of us. They divided the law into categories. They'd have lengthy debates on whether the violation of any law was heavy or light. They also recognized that there are times when the keeping of one law might mean that you'd have to violate another. Well, really? How so? Well, imagine that you are one of those midwives who are being told by Pharaoh that you must report back on every Hebrew male that's born, and then those babies would be killed. To report on babies and then have them killed, that's a moral evil. But to deceive someone, that's also a moral evil. And so one has two commands. Which one are we to keep and which one to reject? See, that's no different than those brave Dutch Christians in the Second World War who hid Jews from the Nazis. And so when someone is faced with two commands in which to keep one would have to mean to break the other, what should you do? And by the way, Jesus himself thought that way. If you go ahead to Matthew 23, verse 23, he condemns the Pharisees. He says, they've neglected the weightier matters of the law. See, he's using the same categories they used. And there Jesus will say, the weightier matters of the law are justice, showing mercy and faithfulness. Tithing of everything, that's also a law of God, but it's a lighter command. And I mention all of that because Christians today struggle with the very same things. And I also mention that because in the end, the question of, of this honorable Pharisee, this, this lawyer who approaches Jesus in the temple on that day, this question is not a trap. He's not one of the hypocrites. This one Pharisee is, in fact, an honorable man who really does look for the way of God. And so his question is both simple and profound. Of the 613 commands that Moses has left us, which of these is the weightiest, the most profound, the one that stands at the top? It's not a matter of minor importance because in the course of our lives, we all want to know which laws we concentrate on above all other things. Again, don't view this as the question of a man who knows nothing of the ways of God or a man bound in legalism. It's a question also for us. What does God want us to do? Notice also that the answer that Jesus gives is not, well, you know, those other commands are not important so long as you're loving God. See, I think it's necessary to say, for there are those, and, and you know what I mean, who say, look, the only thing that God demands of us is love. And the tragic thing about saying that is that it's completely false, even while it's close to the truth. Consider the words of Paul. Romans 13, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's to say, we don't render the law irrelevant now that we know about love. No, that's not what we learn. Rather, if you're going to understand the law properly, rather than legalistically, you'll have to understand that the law teaches what true love looks like. Not sentimentalism, not self-indulgent feelings, not the kind of love that knows nothing about truth and justice. The law is intended to teach true love. Let's go to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which are the foundation of all the other laws, are written on two tablets. The first four teach us to love God, the last six to love others. So let's start with the last six, the ones about loving others. Start with the first of those, honor your father and your mother. Dishonor them, and you show disregard for those who gave birth to you. The next is the prohibition against murder. 
that should be obvious. To commit homicide is to hate. The next, you shall not commit adultery. Ha <laughs> ha! But it's here in our society where we've got it wrong. When justifying our illicit sexual relationships today, people say such misleading things as, well, the heart wants just what the heart wants, and free to love whomever I will. But is that really love when it destroys a marriage? Is it love for the wounded and devastated spouse that's left behind? Is it love for those who heard the vows of lifelong fidelity? Is it love for the children of that unity? Is it love for others who are now emboldened to also be lawless in their sexual misadventures? You see, the truth is that sinful human beings know precious little about love. We confuse love with self-indulgence, getting what we want, and then who cares about the consequences? Look now at the first four commands, the commands that teach us how to love God. Do you love God if you worship false gods? Do you love God if you're constructing an idol so that your idol is not a representation of God at all? You're not loving God if God is an idol. Your God is the product of yourself. You're only loving yourself and your self-centered fantasies. It's not loving God if you're taking the Lord's name in vain. Is it loving God if you don't remember to take one day every week and dedicate it to worship? Wow, how easily we're deceived about true love. Now turn it the other way around. Let's say we're busy keeping the laws one after another, rigidly denying self to keep the law, and in the end, we're not loving at all. That was the problem with the Pharisees. And it's our problem as well. It's possible to care a great deal for the Bible and yet to react bitterly when we see others violate the Bible and then to feel no mercy or compassion for them and offer them no opportunity for grace. And so all that to say that the question the lawyer asked Jesus is a very simple question. Of all the laws, which one is the weightiest? Which is the greatest? Which one must we very carefully not violate? Notice the answer the Lord gives. First, he doesn't give his opinion. He quotes scripture. You know, it's a part of what the Jews call the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, notice that Jesus changes the word might for the word mind. And that's because as Matthew quotes Jesus' quotation, he's writing not in the Hebrew, but in the Greek. He's quoting from, well, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. But does that make a difference, one might say? You know, one says might and the other says mind. Well, I think the answer to that is is actually quite simple. In the Bible, the various aspects of our humanity are not mutually exclusive. Instead, they're overlapping. It's not that sometimes we love God from the heart and then sometimes from the soul and still other times from our mind and then at other times from our strength. The fact that Jesus calls this the great and first commandment singular means that he understands these categories of mind, strength, heart, and soul to be one commandment, one quality. That is, we are not as some, you know, say, you know, loving God with our mind that is in our pursuit of intellectual activities. But the other person loves God from the heart, that is, out of their emotions. See, the point is that love for God is comprehensive. It it covers every single aspect of our being. You can't love God emotionally and care nothing about the intellectual aspects of our faith, or for that matter, vice versa. So stop and consider that. There is no greater command than that you love God, that God is the center of your affections, and that God in his glory is the sole purpose of your life. 
Don't tell me that work done in the service of mankind is of greater value than loving God. It's not. God is infinitely greater than the sum total of all other things, including the sum total of all of humanity. The greatest moral failure that any human being can have, listen, the greatest moral failure is the failure to love God. For God gave us life, and moment by moment, he is sustaining our lives. God owns all things and alone is worthy of worship. To have a heart fully yielded out of delight to God is the ultimate reason for human existence. Application of that, even if you accomplish nothing else in life, than that you have lived in delight of God. You've been successful in this life. And if you've accomplished all things in this life, but have not delighted yourself in God in every way, your life is an unmitigated disaster. Now then the second command, Jesus says, follows the first. Can't be divorced from it. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. That is, even as we feed and clothe ourselves, we seek the well-being of our neighbor. That says Jesus is not only at the top or the heaviest of the commands, but that on these two commands depend everything else, the entire law of Moses, as well as the rest of the First Testament. Let's make sure we understand. You can't separate these two commands. You can't love God and not love others. You can't truly love others if you don't love God. These two commands can't be separated. And furthermore, if you are to learn the commands of God, and out of that not to understand and practice love, you've learned nothing of the Word of God. What are the greatest command? Love God, then love your neighbor. Thanks so much, John, for your message. I'm wondering, is it possible that some of the commandments we read in the Bible have more weight or significance than others? Yeah, see, that you know, the minute you put it that way, and I'm going to answer that, but the minute you do, there are going to be some that have their, you know, just all the red lights will go on, and he'll say, well, you know, he's saying... Certain commands are not as important as others. But, but let me be very clear on this. Uh, it is, in fact, true. The ultimate command is the one that calls us to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those two are ultimate. I mean, you know, I don't want to minimize the idea to be generous. So you want to be generous, but if you see generosity as the ultimate command, you won't see loving the Lord God as the ultimate command. So let's keep those things in perspective. Let's remember there are ultimate issues, and the ultimate issues will make sense of all the other issues as well. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like none other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may actually have happened puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023, and with an optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. With on-location teaching from Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld and evenings of entertainment with Laugh Against Phil Calloway 
and very special musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary or registration forms, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.